0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, longtime friend, Dan Bartow. Dan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Eric, what's happening? Thanks for having me, and
0: this is going to be fun. So, Dan, you are at IMG Academy, where you've been for the last uh, decade plus, uh, 12 years or so. You've been a a player, a coach, uh, an educator, an executive, a a technologist, and I I want to ask you uh, about the arc of your career, but first I just want to say that uh, I want to trace our history a little bit because I want to say that my experience at IMG uh, Basketball Academy was one of the most influential experiences I've ever had. Um, I have to say, you know, one, I was, a, I was a player there. And then I was an intern there, uh, both under you and as a, as an intern, but also as a player, I, um, I feel like i never worked harder. I, I feel like it was the hardest I'd, I'd ever worked in my life. Uh, you know, from, you know, sun up to, to sundown. I remember you know, taking the golf carts to, to the gym to, to get it ready. And I feel like that, that work ethic really, really traveled with me. It just gave me the confidence that I, I could apply that uh, to anything I did. There are a couple other lessons I want to share. One is that I um, I thought I was hot shit. I, I thought I uh, really understood, you know, I was the next Lawrence Frank or Sposter or, or whatever it was. I thought I really understood the game of basketball. And I remember in a very nice and humble way, you, you put me in my, in my place a little bit and just seeing uh, how much you knew the game of basketball and, and you even shared with me your files of all, all the stuff you'd collected over the years really just sort of gave me a humility of like, wow, I have a lot, lot to learn. And then lastly, I remember I was uh, in an email exchange. You probably don't remember this. I, I was just sharing with you how my senior season was going. And, you know, basketball is my whole life. And I remember one thing you wrote in, a, in your advice was sort of you know, do not rationalize with a question mark. And so, you know, in terms of what, what what's possible to achieve. And I feel like I really took those three things. One, the, the work ethic. Two, the humility. But then three, the, the confidence of, you know, don't rationalize like why, why couldn't I start a VC firm and get some of the, some amazing people to to join it and to back it or start new companies or or reach my dreams and, and whatever whatever it was. So I just wanted to start the podcast by by thanking you for that uh, that the massive influence that, that that those few summers uh, had on me.
1: Yeah, this has been you know during COVID it's been so awesome to catch up with all the former players, former interns, former people that have come through the academy, and you try to stay in touch with people during normal times. You get an opportunity like this and you just learn how much of an impact IMG Academy had and your own mentorship slash coaching slash friendship with people go on. So it's humbling to hear those things. But I have some memories of you as well uh, during your playing days and during your uh, intern days. Uh, So it's to me, no surprise that uh, you're in the position that you're in because you know, one of the speeches we always give to whether it's campers or our players, and you might remember this well is at some point, you know, basketball is going to come to an end, even if it's after a 10 year pro career. Uh, And our job at the academy and our mission at the IMG basketball segment of the academy is to teach you how to organize your day to chase your passion of basketball to the highest level possible. And then when you pivot, We want you to chase your next adventure with that same passion, same daily planning, same meticulous addressing of weaknesses, same questioning of why things are the way that they are uh, so that it can give you an advantage on the court. And then, you know, spin that like you obviously have done at a tremendous level uh, in the VC world and in the mentoring world with some of your new projects. Uh, But my second story is – In my whole history here, I've never seen anybody write notes faster. You would finish a drill, and if you thought the drill was good, you would run over during the water break to, like, write notes in your notebook. And I couldn't, like, believe you. I'm like, get back here, Eric. Like, I'll tell you afterwards what's going on. You don't leave in the middle of the workout to write things down that you want to remember. And in the classroom segment, you being there. And then even the same way as an intern – when you were working and rebounding and filling water bottles and wiping up sweat on the floor and waking up, but rebounding six hours on a Saturday, you still were taking notes when you were off the clock. You know, you were watching the other coaches work players out. Uh, you were kind of analyzing and breaking down the players to share your thoughts with us, which we use sometimes. Uh, yeah. And and really, you know, same way. Like we said, like hopefully someday. You know, when you leave here, you'll be a agent and this is, or you'll be a pro player or you'll be uh you know, you'll be a nutritionist or a sports scientist or hell, maybe one day you'll even own a team. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, you're lucky cause that, that dream's still alive for you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the, the NBA player one is, is over, but but who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe the owner one. But no, I, I appreciate that IMG is one of the most you know meaningful and, and fun and formative experiences of my life. So it's a real pleasure to to jam with you on it. And and with that as a segue, let, let's get into it a bit. I, I heard you on another podcast say that, you know one question they asked you was what would your autobiography be called, and you said uh, you know one step ahead. And and so if you sort of trace your multi-decade career in in basketball and in various different forms where do you think you've been one one step ahead or how do you sort of um, articulate the threads that you've kept on pulling in in, in your career because you could have you turned down a bunch of nBA jobs you could have had a bunch of different positions but you 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 went about it your way
1: I was blessed you know my dad was a teacher, my mom was a nurse uh, I, I say that all the time because i can't thank them enough. My dad was also a basketball coach so that allowed me early access to high-level basketball, and they were really good when I was in my you know, youth years of seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, he took a break from basketball for a couple years and then got back into it and was lucky enough to have one of the top high school teams in the country. This also was 93, 94, 95, coincided with kind of the rise of AAU basketball, which we all know so well. 97 was also a little bit of a change in the NBA collective bargaining agreement. You moved into 2001, uh, where not between 97 and 2001, the idea of the straight from high school to the NBA started to happen. Uh, I got to trace some of my dad's players on his team and the local AAU guys on their journey towards becoming first-round picks, so that gave me unique access Uh, My college career was being a student manager. We were laughing about wiping floors and filling up water. That's what I did for four years. For those basketball people that don't know, the legend of Charlie Coles, I went to Miami University of Ohio. Coach Coles is renowned in the college basketball world. His family of coaches included guys like Sean Miller, who's now at Arizona, Thad Mata, who most recently was at Ohio State, Rob Senderoff at uh, Kent State, James Whitford who's now at Ball State. So I had guys that were next level guys mentoring me before I even knew they were next level guys. Coach Coles coached with a lot of personality, as did my father, uh, although my father definitely threw more chairs in practice than Coach <laughs> Coles did in college. Uh, but again, the dual the, the learning would never stopped. And then lastly, when I finished college, I, I moved back home to help with the family businesses. Uh, On top of being a coach and a nurse and all these things, my family actually owned two bars, uh, two bar restaurants that were local places. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So if you know the history of Pittsburgh, local means, you know, steel mill, shift work. All those things is kind of how my dad and grandpa built the bars. But another very unique experience being able to bartend, Uh, and be around what goes on with people uh, between the hours of 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. during my college years uh, on top of basketball. So from a life experience, I like to throw those things in there because when I finished, my last stint was with Shadyside Academy, a very high-end private school. I also got the luxury of being around the Pitt program. At the time was Ben Howland and Jamie Dixon, two other guys that just flew to the top of the college world. And my last kind of thing that happened that I want to share was as a 23-year-old hotshot assistant coach, I was given the opportunity to interview, to be a head coach at the age of 23 at a local high school, Springdale High School. Uh, And I didn't get the job and I was devastated that they didn't hire me because I knew so many people and I should have got it. And I I knew everything there was about basketball. Uh, and, And that day was when I actually went home and started thinking about the next steps, and within the next week, I found IMG Academy, uh, and I applied for an internship, unpaid, got it, and literally, I never left, really. (laughs) So uh, that's how I got to IMG Academy, and my career arc since then has kind of been everything from coaching eighth-grade girls to working for, you know, you know, early on in his career with guys like Jimmy Butler being on the court with Kevin Garnett and Kevin Durant and, you know, high, high level people today, Ty Lu got named the LA Clippers coach. I got to spend tons of time with Ty Lu towards the beginning, you know, the beginning parts of the, like his move into, you know, the, the, the tail end of what he's doing now. Uh, and just unbelievable access, uh, once I got to the Academy.
0: Yeah. I um I I personally never saw you throw a chair, but I I could see the energy, the intensity. (laughs) I could see it happening. (laughs) Um, So so I I appreciate you having it in your in your in your family. Let's talk about a segue into uh, how the game, uh, and maybe we can talk about the pro game. How the pro game has evolved over the past couple decades. Like if you were to talk about maybe the biggest turning points in, in how the game is played differently, or the biggest or the, the different phase waves or, or biggest changes that led to the game being played differently? Just We'll get to the business later, but just the, on a game level and what that means. What, what, what comes to mind for you? Well, I
1: can't not address the business because the reality is what has changed the game is the rule changes. I believe since 2001, I think it's been 17 rule changes. Uh, and a lot of these rule changes are to make the game more fan friendly uh, and more kind of scoring perimeter oriented. As we've seen the adjustments the last ten years, uh, those are things that have definitely made the game more open and and allowed for things to be more exciting, I guess. And then you have you're always going to have innovative people. You're always going to have, you know, we were discussing the zone defense and it being bigger this in these playoffs than ever before. You have Denver with what they did playing big lineups. Okay, you have teams that are building around building their their uh, franchise around young players to stay under the cap so they have to be super innovative with you know the amount of threes that they shoot or how many paint touches that they get because they know they don't have the weaponry to compete with the top teams and in 2000 and I believe 15 when they changed the salary cap and the salary cap went up by 30 million that shook the way the teams had to develop their rosters. And I think that if you look at this year's playoffs, bubble or not, this year's playoffs, everybody was trying to build their build their team to beat the Lakers, even though we had never seen this Lakers team before.
0: What ads might you try to make or how would you approach that?
1: I think that obviously you need to have a uh, true rim protector uh, to, to kind of keep them at bay. I think that you'll see teams in the West load up with rim protectors maybe even try to experiment with playing two rim protectors and basically three kind of hybrid guards. Uh, I think that if Houston keeps Russell Westbrook, they can kind of develop a, uh, a, a roster around him, not because of his offensive ability, but just because you can pretty much put two rim protectors around the basket and have them set 500 ball screens and spread the floor with shooters. Miami had it. Miami had the formula just not the amount of athleticism uh, and just, again, if they put people away in the early series, maybe they have some more energy late, you know, late against the Lakers, but you have to hand it to, to the Lakers organization and the players on the roster. I mean, you have we talked Rondo hitting threes, KCP hitting threes. Yeah, you have Danny Green, you know, doing what he does and just finding ways to win, even though it doesn't show up in the in the in the columns. Uh, and that's you know that starts with the general manager. You know, Polenka did
0: a great job, or Rich Paul, whatever you want to joke about. Yeah, it's LeBron has a specific way of building teams, right? Like he gets these sort of these veterans uh, who are a bit you know, past their primes, um, but, you know, know how to win and our shooters, but they're they're not exactly Kyle Corver shooters and they're not exactly like, I don't know, Bradley Beal, like, you know, other, other sort of all-star except when he had Kyrie, but it's an interesting way that LeBron has of building his teams. You know, like w- what's your perception of, of how he thinks about.
1: I, you know, I think that obviously taking the players that will take, you know, Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee and, and Rajon Rondo guys that are willing to take a pay cut are few and far between, but, I think what LeBron does that people discount too much is he leads by example, but he also knows how to have a lot of fun. You know, you, 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 obviously Jordan and Kobe, they tended to rub people the wrong way that were on their own team to get the most out of them. He's found a way to build camaraderie to get the most out of his teams at the right time. Uh, and then, if he feels obviously if somebody's eroding that camaraderie or is not buying in, then he can, he does have the power to have them moved uh, or make them so miserable that they they want to be moved themselves. Yeah. Uh, but I but again, I think that probably because of his upbringing and being exposed to adults at such an early age, I think he's a genius reader of people.
0: Yeah. There there was this sort of viewpoint at one point that centers who couldn't step out who were only limited to the post but who couldn't step out and shoot were, were, were less valuable or didn't have as much of a place in the NBA maybe one example that comes to mind is Roy Hibbert like did, did the game sort of pass Hibbert by or maybe even you know you're talking about Dwight Howard in, in some ways he underachieved relative to what his potential was some people think or maybe Andrew Bynum of course these people had their own challenges but is, 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 is there something to this or how do you sort of make sense of sort of the role of the center and, and how that's evolved over time
1: I mean, the rule changes changed a lot because when they, you know, they can guard with, you know, the, the, the post differently. uh, And you also have, you know, just the pace of play, the amount of times that you have to change ends of the floor and the way that people manipulated their offense to put people in more switch situations. Teams started valuing being able to guard point guards because of their efficiency and productivity. And that led to, throwing the ball into the post less. And then when it did go into the post or hit on a a slip or hit on a roll, the athleticism is just so high that the rotations were faster. And so it just – you know, the rule changes and teams – players being at a higher athletic level than they've ever been, been, you look at the international component that a lot of times people who come from international countries – they may not be the prettiest thing to watch all the time, but their basketball instincts are much higher than Americans on things like rotations and, and, and what they're supposed to do to take the team out of what they're doing offensively. They're tremendous at it. I think you can see that. Obviously, Luke is the prime example uh, from this year. But, again, if you look at the shot charts, when the center was strong, you saw a majority of the shots coming from the block, the 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 short corner dunker position, the mid post, and the elbow. And now because of teams trying to beat the teams with super centers, the majority of the shots come from the NBA three-point line. Yeah. You know, and they either come deep in the paint when the help isn't there or it's all outside of the three-point line. Uh, yeah. And now it's 10 it's starting to shift back. You know, with these five out teams like Houston and like Miami, Uh, it's starting to shift back. We saw a ton of mid-range in the final series, uh, and we saw a ton of mid-range in the playoffs. And as teams go to more five out trying to keep everybody happy and everybody getting their statistics, like Milwaukee, I think you're going to start to see those shot zones and and maybe even post-ups truly coming back for centers. And the last point I'd like to make is when the one-and-done rule ended and guys had to go to college – People that were identified as superior basketball players at age 14 chose colleges from age 14 to 18, they got bigger. They kind of got better, but they never had to play with a sense of urgency uh, that 82 games requires. Then they go to college as a seven footer or a six, nine stud. And the college game is completely different than the NBA game. And as they go from the NBA, college game into the NBA, The psychological component combined with the easiness that things came to them from probably 2012 to 2020, I believe hurt the center from being able to get in and bring it every day and bring it for the right reasons and be coachable. I think it's the position that's early identified the most uh, that also probably has the biggest fail rate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And where do you see that going, by the way? You know, they've made a bunch of changes over the years, one and done, you know, et cetera. Um, how, do, how do you expect that to evolve over the years in terms of what, what the rules are or what you expect young, talented people to do? Do they go to college? Do they go international? Do they go straight to the league? And what do you expect to happen? And what, if you could wave a wand, what should happen?
1: What should happen is, well, what's going to happen is uh, basketball is probably going to go most likely to, to club. 12 months out of the year. COVID has kind of started that. I think that Mark Cuban presented the idea like 10 years ago that NBA teams start to act like MLS teams uh, and start to act like European club teams and build out their own feeder systems, which then recruit from an area or a geographic region. Whereas even if someone moves into that geographic region, they can play for that club team Uh, We've seen for the last six or seven years the building of super high schools. We obviously are one of them. We have one of probably the best team in the country. We won a national championship two years ago, got canceled out of the national championship this year. Uh, But everything evolves. You know, we've been doing it really well for five or six years. But as I've seen the market change, this is where it's going. I mean, kids are going to go online to school. Kids are going to go and potentially just do four periods a day to maintain their high school eligibility. And city academies, you know, the, the San Francisco Basketball Academy or the Golden State Warriors, you know, U18 program and U16 program uh, is where it's going to go. Now, the NCA will still exist, but it will z- exist more in a hockey baseball style where players who go would need to commit to at least two full years, three years removed from high school, and then they would be draft eligible if they would like to go to the pros before that,
0: uh, they would have to be somewhere other than the NBA. Yeah. And what about uh, the, the game more broadly? You were mentioning, you know, shot zones coming back maybe, you know, in the next five years. How do you expect do you expect any major rule changes or any other sort of changes to the game that, you know, are we going to be scoring as many points? Like what, what do you expect to to take place in the next few years? Um,
1: you mean from strictly on court?
0: Yeah, on-court or rules-related, or, rules related, or if, if, if the business of basketball affects the, the on-court.
1: I do think that there obviously kids will be able to enter the draft uh, out of high school again as part of the new collective borrowing agreement, whatever that may end up being, um, or the change that they had already proposed for, I believe it was 2022. But as far as the on-court rule changes, you know, I think from the NBA standpoint, uh, for sure, I think they're going to allow at some point some level of hand-checking or hands on the guards uh, just to make the game more physical. I feel with the rise of, you know, the popularity of hockey is skyrocketing among the youth players, the popularity of UFC. I mean, there's some level of combat that people enjoy. Uh, I think that we saw it during, you know, if you're flipping between playoff games and you see something on Twitter that there was some type of altercation. And, and again, look, I don't want the NBA to go full WWE. I, that's not my point. But I think that the physicality, Versus letting guys just dance around with the ball will force more downhill play, uh, and force you know again more hard contests. That I don't want to. I don't want to sit here and say that teams are definitely going to go bigger. But if I was a GM, I would be trying to draft the most athletic six, nine guys and above, and try to work on their skills, much like Milwaukee did with the honest. I think that. Yeah is where you're going to see a lot of people go and just say, hey, we're going to develop this guy for seven years between our D-League team uh, and pro. And, and that's just how we're going to, because we can't beat Anthony Davis and LeBron or KD and Kyrie or Jimmy and Joel Embiid next year for the Heat if, if we don't have multiple people that can, can keep them away from the rim.
0: Is that your prediction that Joel Embiid is going to the Heat?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be like the the reunited guys that didn't get along before, like just the all troll slash heel turn. Is that, is that a BAM trade or is BAM still there? No, no. I think, I think that BAM stays. I just think that, you know, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that Philadelphia has to make some moves and I think Joel Meade is great where he's at and obviously dominant and maybe not be the greatest fit along those, those guys. But I think that, if Jimmy Butler and, and and the crew say we want to win an NBA championship and Joel and B can't figure out how to get into that top, you know, eight players in the NBA from a respect level, then everybody's got to give up a little bit of something for the greater good.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating watching Butler in the finals. He was sort of a, just his mid range game. I mean, he, you know, it wasn't anything from three. It was just, I don't, I don't know if it's Jordan S, but I mean, it was just really just, it was tremendous one-on-one basketball mid range. I mean, it felt sort of retro. I mean, his his game is I can't think of other players that have been sort of more improved that it sort of had a questionable path in, in certain teams or certain ways but just proved themselves you know a winner in in, in one season or one playoffs it's, it's have you have you seen something like it or
1: no and look Jimmy's unique I, I mentioned earlier that I got to spend some time with him uh when he came out of Marquette and he did all this pre-draft training and spent time down here during the summer and super, super unique. Uh, you know, I remember him getting into my car when I picked him up from the Sarasota airport. And I had true, and people who are fans know this, like the guy literally turned up the country music song and sang every word as <laughs> we drove up 41 back to the Academy. And I'm like, how do you know all the words to this song it's like, I'm from Bumble, Texas and I love country music and I brought my cowboy boots. And I mean, the guy was just so genuine, but and I'll bring up two points about Jimmy that I think the people will find interesting. One was, you know, again, like he had that level 10 psycho obsession after he had a bad day, like his bad days were, you know, by himself at a basket for an additional hour by himself, not wanting to talk to anybody. His lost one-on-one games were him disrupting the next day to play that guy again. in one-on-one like just ruining everybody's training, not ruining it, but yeah. like literally eager to get back on the court to play one-on-one against that guy again and prove to him. And, and you, you can't teach that. From an on-court standpoint, he has short arms. It's a short wingspan. He actually has low hips if you look at him towards, you know, the overall. So his ability to decelerate in that mid-range uh, and his ability to quickly change direction is different than most of the athletic builds in the NBA. And that's why you can see him get to spots and do things that people don't think that he should be able to do. He also was blessed to play with Buzz Williams, and Buzz Williams was a huge paint touch guy. Drive the ball as hard as you can every day until you get it into the paint and then make a decision. Most colleges don't do that. So he acquired these skills that you're seeing with a unique body and then a unique upbringing and then a unique mentality. Uh, and, and I think we saw that all kind of come together, which was very fun to watch and, you know, a guy that you you can't stop rooting for.
0: Totally. I mean, another player that had a tremendous season was, was uh, Gordon uh, Dragic. Um And it's, it's, I feel like he's one of the, you were talking about the hand check rule. I feel like he's one of the people who really benefit from, from that. Maybe, maybe, you know, Steve Nash, another person a long time ago, comes to mind that people it like transforms their careers, the ability to just get into the paint easier, et cetera. And maybe these aren't the most athletic. I mean, Nash is really athletic, but, They're not sort of, um, I don't know, um, Russell Westbrook or something, but they, with with the ability to not be checked, they they can just get into the paint easier. I feel like.
1: Yeah. We call it moving on C's and S's. You know, if you looked at the, if you looked at basketball movement, like the alphabet, a C is, is a very difficult kind of pattern to keep a full speed movement on. If you're running in the direction of a C or if you're running in a circle or if you're making an S. Uh, and Drogic is one of Steve Nash, obviously, as well. Chris Paul is amazing in that they move on what we call season S's at full speed. Uh, and they also, because they have this unique understanding of their body and movement patterns, they can also leverage the defender's body. At some point, the defense has to change the angle of their hips and lose balance. Like you can't m- move backwards and laterally without losing power. It's impossible. Uh, And those guys play so much that they get so good at feeling that moment when someone's going to get off balance and shooting or changing direction or letting the defender get off balance and going back the other direction. Uh, And, again, it's a very unique skill that five-star fast-twitch super athletes can't do because they they don't have the deceleration – and where they have a messed up lever system with super high hips and super long arms that they can't quickly do the things that some of these short-armed, low-hipped, you know, special low-moving guys at the guard positions can
0: do. I want to talk about how, um, uh, how coaching has evolved over time. My sort of guess is that players just have more leverage and, and so coaches have to be more reserved, perhaps. I'm curious if that's if that's right. But I also, um, you mentioned earlier that that college game is just different from the NBA game, and and we see some college coaches come in and have success, like Brad Stevens. Others perhaps struggle, like my own, uh, you know, John John Beeline. And some of them are situation specific. Some of them are, hey, just the the game is different. Uh, and any commentary on, on either of those? How, how how coaching has evolved over time, or just some more than the differences between you know college being successful in college, being successful in basketball, and NBA as a coach
1: uh well college is this college you are the you are the ceo the cfo the coo uh you are the lead strategist you are everything to everybody uh, and a lot of times you're making four five six times the amount of money that even the athletic director is uh and basketball boosters are donating at a rate that's higher than any other department on campus uh so those guys can stick to their systems stick to their beliefs Uh, do things the way that they want to do it now beeline was a very special example because he was also an innovator uh, and created a whole new offense uh, and a whole new kind of philosophy Uh, and and so did brad stevens you know brad stevens was an analytics guy so when you look at those two guys and the success that they had at the college level uh, it was a combination of the two even if i was just on the phone with a former florida state guy uh, and, and, I, and, you know, I don't think that uh, me and Leonard Hamilton will high-five each other the next time that we see him, each other. But Leonard Hamilton has kind of done the same thing at Florida State where he's kind of been the CEO in, of everything uh, and over the last five years has put together power lineups at Florida State which could maybe, you know, win some SEC football games with the type of guys that they have. Now, flip to the NBA, a lot of times you have a GM when he's making a coaching change is actually trying to keep his own contract extended or keep his own contract negotiations moving forward. So he's chosen and the owners have chosen to side with the general manager or the, the lead basketball person in the front office, or they've chosen the coach and they're going to bring in a new GM. So I'm sure with the word and, and, you know, I have a, one of the parents of one of our kids that I you know know is a is a does some search stuff uh, for a corn ferry his name's Jed Hughes and every time you I've had conversations with him he's used the word alignment you have to align the organization wow. to make sure that everybody's ideals maximized and the coach a lot of times is the fall guy look at the clippers look at the houston rockets now daryl Morey just resigned today from houston uh, as the general manager, which means they're changing everything in Houston. Look at Golden State. Obviously, they've had great synergy with, with Bob Myers and, and and Coach Kerr, but that starts with the ownership. So depending on the organization, the coach is doomed from day one.
0: Yeah, and maybe that's why Lawrence Frank uh, evolved to executive um, <laughs> executive from a coach. What did John Beeline, Beeline innovate on? Or what was so innovative about his his offense or his philosophy or –
1: John Beeline coached at each level. He, you know, I believe he started at junior college and then at Division II, and then, you know, when he got uh, to the Division I level, he he knew that he didn't, he wasn't going to woo five star athletes and five star, five star players to to West Virginia, and you know he had developed this this system to kind of spread the floor out. We messed with it as a, I messed with it as a coach, some too. You know, it's basically known as the two guard offense. Uh, and it's very skill oriented and and it's basically meant to take away the help side defense and then it has a bunch of tactical calls to take advantage of each the point guard, the shooting guard, the small forward, the power forward, and the center position and then, as a coach, you can just sit back there and and make the play calls uh, and and he did this with guys that were not five-star recruits or not four-star recruits, and he was able to win games. He countered his offense with a hybrid change of the 1-3-1 defense. 1-3-1 zone was the least played zone defense at college basketball at the time. So he not only took the 1-3-1, he took it and he changed the calls and the rotations and made his own. This then sent it into a point where you were very difficult to prepare for. And you were very difficult to do any type of scouting on because you could didn't have enough time between Tuesday and Saturday or Wednesday and Saturday to prepare for him. And then now as he got further along at Michigan, he was able to bring in five-star recruits or, you know, high-level players that also had the IQ. And that's why you saw the tremendous success uh, that, that he had because, the players bought into the system, and then now they could physically always compete uh, with what was going on with the other team. Yeah.
0: Speaking of sort of uh, you know revolutionary offenses at the time, the, the triangle offense has has the NBA sort of passed the triangle offense by. You know, Bill Jackson, of course, really struggled with the Knicks. I mean, who, who doesn't struggle with the Knicks as a longtime Knicks fan? So I don't want to blame him. But uh, what's your take on on that?
1: I, I mean, again, I think if the Los Angeles Lakers right now wanted to implement the triangle offense. They could, and they could have a lot of success, and we would say that Frank Bogle, you know, has has reinvented the game. But the reality is he just has LeBron and Anthony Davis and a bunch of shooters, and that's what Phil Jackson always had. He always had two studs and a bunch of shooters uh, and tough guys on the defensive end. The problem with the triangle offense is, again, it, it really messes up your, your defensive transitions. You know, it, it also – needs players that can make mid-range shots. And and there's just not a ton of them that make the mid-range shot. So as the game went to teams, you know, Mike D'Antoni changing the game with the Suns, he was the innovator. Five years later, everybody's shooting more threes because he's throwing all these crazy analytics into the world of why seven seconds or less works in Phoenix. Well, he we had Steve Nash and Amart <laughs> spotmeyer which helped. Yeah. Uh, but people started copying that and then again it was really hard for teams that would run the triangle or run typical pro sets if the other team's getting three points for every two points or they're shooting x amount of threes that equals 90 points and you're shooting x amount of twos that only gets you to 75
0: the math just didn't work to stay in that offense uh any longer yeah. The, the shot clock management is fascinating. I, I in the heat in the, in the, in the last few games, I just, I saw them just getting down to the just moving too slow into their offense. And and then at the end, they just had to throw something up, but yeah, the, just getting something, getting something early is so important. It seems.
1: And, and again, I think that that you, when you have to work hard to keep people off the glass and you have to, I mean, you have to work so hard to keep a body on LeBron or on Anthony Davis to keep them off the glass. It's, you know, it wears you down to where you want to rest on offense. Yeah. And that's how teams are going to have to build moving forward. They're going to have to build more physically ready, less skilled
0: teams and teach them how to be skilled. Yeah. And, and maybe deeper benches. It would have been great if we saw, you know, 10 plus or something in, in that game. Which,
1: yes, which will be fascinating to watch
0: with this off season uh, as the salary cap goes down. Yeah. So let's talk about a bit about, NBA team strategy and how that's evolved over the years. Of course, you know, the ways to level up have been, you know, the NBA draft, you know, free agency and, you know, and, and trade uh, trades. How, how has it sort of changed and how do you see it changing going forward just in terms of, you know, NBA team strategy, getting a team like the Pistons or if your team like, you know, the Knicks obviously, or, or, you know, the Wizards or something, how do teams, you know, who aren't at the, the top get, get into the top? What, what are the, how has that evolved and what strategies do you think make most sense?
1: I think the biggest change that you're going to see coming up is personality analytics. I think that you're going to try to, I think you're going to see a lot like the big, the big firms do. You're going to see where people's motivations lie and if their motivations are going to change. Uh, and then you're going to do your due diligence to see if they've been, you know, if they've stayed true to their word in the past. And when you draft kids out of high school, you'll have a little bit more control and they will be a little less tarnished by the the policies uh, and procedures that kind of go on amongst the high school ranks. Um, And and in the AAU world, as we unfortunately saw uh, where that kind of market went uh, in, in a bad way. Now, when you look at the having the right personalities, which I think the heat were the perfect example of that, as well as the Lakers bench this year, you know, everybody from, you know, Alex Caruso's uh, uh, accepting his role to Jared Dudley, uh, who probably can actually could have contributed, but just such a great locker room guy and such a great person to have around practice every day. I think that's going to be, if you have the cap room, you can build your team that same way. You just have to woo a big, a small market, Uh, superstar to your city. And then I think you're going to see other ones that, you know, build their team around the guys that they drafted. And they basically do what Danny Ainge has done in Boston, and you're going to have to make some hard decisions and let some guys walk. Uh, But you're always going to be one piece away from a championship, as opposed to a total rebuild. I think you're going to see as the values of the franchises go down here in, in kind of the recession time, I think you're going to see teams, you know, spend less. And you're going to see teams really try to be one piece away or hope the other team has one player that gets injured. Or you you got the, get the European guy that came and no one thought he was going to be as good as he was. Uh, and and you're going to see a lot of teams at the trade deadline is going to become a much bigger part of what affects the playoffs.
0: Yeah it's fascinating and and and, and the, so you don't expect teams to just sort of like go uh, you know tank or go for championship you expect teams to sort of incrementally try to improve and and it's worth it to get to this 8 seed or 7 seed as opposed to you know trying to get that first pick or something
1: right i think i mean i think if you look at the lakers like the lakers the new collective bargaining agreement happened in 2015 salary cap went up 30 million they knew that they need to get a superstar you know, they, they and they and they spent four years building towards that and got the guy that they they wanted, but also you know again, if they wouldn't have got him, they would have got somebody else with that plan and probably been damn close, just like the Clippers, you know, do. And 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 yes, I, I think that once the new collective bargain if they have to redo a new collective bargaining agreement right now, then people will start planning around the flexibility that that gives you. Um, but the finance is always going to go into what you're doing. Uh, because they had to, the Lakers had to spend year a year probably figuring out how they were going to make the Anthony Davis trade work, and then they had no control over whether New Orleans was actually going to agree to it, or he could have just as easily been in Boston or Chicago. Yeah. You know, so you spend all this time trying to build the perfect plan, and there's just so many details that go into the getting somebody to accept what you want. And and again, New Orleans is only two pieces
0: away. From being really damn good again, so that's a win for them. Yeah, it's fascinating, and it's 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 amazing how much it really depends on the owner. I keep talking about Knicks fan, but you know, are the Knicks not going to be good for another decade? I mean, is it really? Is ownership just matters so much, or how how do you see the Knicks playing out? Give me some hope, or some, uh, or the opposite.
1: I mean, I think that obviously they have a, a structural change in their front office. Uh, they have a guy in their front office, William Wesley, who can, you know, who can help them navigate the free agent markets and and make sure that the motivations are going to be right. They have some good assets that people will take in trades if they wanted to get one or two players. I mean, this week it was, Hey, they're going to make a move to get Chris Paul. And, you know, he could eventually be the head coach of that organization, which is just crazy that people are thinking that far down the line, but I think you're they're, they're, you're two years away from knowing. You know you're going to have a year to un to use your current assets to bring in good players, and then you're going to have that one summer of free agency where you get your Kawhi or you get your LeBron, which now will be you know Giannis or it will be you know another uh, Jimmy Butler again or it will be Devin Booker. Uh, is probably the most likely candidate to try to go to New York to be a superstar other than potentially Giannis. But, you know, with with these teams building this way, it actually stunts the development of high-end rookies and high-end second-year players. So it's going to be hard for us or hard for the teams to really know who can blossom into that all-star caliber. Like Devin Booker did it because Phoenix has not been very good. Yeah. You know, he was able to acquire the skills on a bad team maybe zion can do the same thing if Phil, if i'm sorry if uh, new orleans stays where they are you know ben simmons is a perfect example he was going to be the next coming but then philadelphia tried to get really good really quick you know his generational talent that he was going to be the next lebron was not what philadelphia wanted at the time they just wanted to try to win a championship uh, and you're going to see more than that more of that uh, unless there's there's a big change to
0: the to the collective warrior. room, yeah. Let, let's segue into the business here because it's interesting. You know, it's it's been uh, documented how much we talk about AU. It's it's been documented how much Nike and other you know companies have influenced you know basketball through through AU and 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 others. And there's just a lot a lot of ways in which basketball players are becoming more savvy businessmen and business people and are making more money. In fact, outside of the game in in certain in certain ways, you know, LeBron and, and others. Do you expect? That, that to continue? How do you expect sort of the business of being basketball player to, to evolve? Because then I, I want to transition into, you know, what, what that means for the league.
1: Obviously, I mean, we'll look, all, all we hear about all day and night here is that the name, image, and likeness that's coming into college. And, and I think this is fascinating, what I'm about to say is, our campers that came through camp this summer cared more about what high school players were doing than what NBA players were doing. The kids that came through camp that are 12, 13 years old cared more about LaMelo Ball and Cole Anthony because that's who they see on their social media than they did about Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James. Wow. 85% of them, if you asked them who their favorite team was, would have either said Golden State or or LA. And, you know, it's, so it's very top-heavy. I mean, I would almost say that, that Clipper, or the Lakers and the – the Golden state warriors might get broken up because it's almost to an oligopic state where there's nobody else that people even like remotely like care about. Uh, but you know, you, you, you look at the players and they want more control. The agents have less control than ever before. Family are more educated. Family are protecting kids' brands all the way down to 13 years old in the basketball industry. And they are starting to build their brands earlier. Now there's people that are tracking what a 15 year olds, you know, social media worth is to the, to the community. What Brawny's social media value is how that's going to affect his name, image, and likeness. And kids are going to spend more time on that than they are actually following the NBA and following what the players at the NBA level are doing. Now, from a business standpoint, I think players are going to be able to de-globalize and actually worry less about having a global brand. And most players are going to be able to find more money to make in their community. Uh, And they're going to become much more community oriented, uh, invest in commuter districts and commuter zones that exist in the cities that they're in, uh, and maybe even look to stay regionally. I'm not saying next year. I'm saying, you know, four to 10 years out try to stay more regionally so that their brand is super strong in a small area Uh, or like Cole Anthony wanting to be, you know, a Nick because that's where he grew up and just doing everything he can. If he got there to do all the right things so he could stay right now, you don't want a kid to go back home. You don't want a kid to be in his hometown. You don't want him to have all that distraction because you want him to develop. But I think from a value standpoint, uh, I think you're going to see more kids stay home closer to college and more kids or for college and more kids want to stay home for their pro career. And then if you do end up somewhere else, they go, if you want to build your brand, it's going to be in the community first, not traveling to do a clinic in, you know, in Shanghai or, you know, in Tel Aviv or in, 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 Barcelona, but it's going to be like, no, let's just, let's make sure that everybody in Orlando every business wants me, every, every school wants me to come. And, and that's going to be where the, 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 the incremental
0: value just skyrockets. I feel like the ball family has been really, and we may, one may not disagree with all of their decisions, but has just been really innovative in, in taking a few, you know, one, you know, the mellow playing overseas, you know, their experiment with the shoes, you know, their investment in their own personal brands on, on social media, really seeing themselves as owners and creators and wanting more upside, what do you think their sort of legacy is in terms of what other people follow from what they've done? Or,
1: I mean, you have to respect the, the innovation and the creativity and, the, and, and you know, almost you know, from LeVar's standpoint, the narcissistic belief in everything that he does. The poor guy was just two years ahead of everything. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, if he would have waited two more years on all of his projects, they probably all would have taken off. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, with with the last son here with LaMelo, uh, he's obviously the stars of the line. He's going to be a top five pick, you know, he's going to bring, you know, eyeballs to whatever organization selects him. And I think that he's, he's a very good player too, because of the experiences that he went through. But I, I, I think that five years from now, when they're looking back, I don't think it would have been impossible to build a billion dollar industry outside of the shoes, I wish he would have stuck with it. um, Because, you know, I think that, you know, as we see, as we see with Puma entering the market and doing so well, there's there was and there was a need in the market. Uh, They just didn't capitalize on the momentum that they
0: created. Yeah, I I want to segue into the topic I've been most excited to talk about, we've sort of been jamming on a little bit over the past years, is really just this concept of, could the NBA players start their own league? Should the NBA players start their own league? And I'll set this up by saying that you know, about a year ago or so, I I, I was just thinking that, what, you know, why don't NBA players own sort of equity in the team? These, these teams are worth, you know, billions, billion plus dollars, billions of dollars. They, you know, you come to see LeBron more so than you perhaps come to see, you know, the, the specific team or, or the NBA. And, you know, are, are players uh, capturing the value that sufficient to what they're creating? Should they not have you know more more ownership, and if LeBron plus others decided to to go elsewhere, could they make more money? So it was mostly a business decision. Um, but then, most recently, you know, um, players have been more active in social justice. We all know this. They even protested a game, and there's a question next season of, of whether the NBA will sort of go go along with it in the same way. Um, I think Adam Silver said, "Hey, ne- next year we might not have some of the signage or some of the verbiage." And so that might sort of raise the stakes in terms of maybe NBA players saying, no, we should do it this way uh, and maybe wanting to split. I I know you thought about this a lot. How how do you make sense of this and and, and how do you react? Let's work. You want to work forward or backward? Uh, Whatever. Uh, Let's work backwards.
1: Okay. So we sit in a market where there's a couple, not only NBA players, but a couple very influential people uh, that are sitting on unknown opportunity because the players are scheduled to take a by the letter of the contract in the collective bargaining agreement at a 30 to 40 percent pay cut for next season including the max players now this will all have to be negotiated with the nba uh, and, and they've started negotiating it since last april in my opinion the players probably should have not played this summer uh, in hopes of getting the future of the collective bargaining agreement really ironed out uh, because it was really their only chance. They would have to leave a lot of money on the table, but it, in turn they're going to leave a lot of money on the table as it is. And in this situation with the, whatever you want to call it, the basketball related income decreasing so much and no tickets sold and blah, 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 blah. The actual max players at the top of the league are scheduled to take a cut because max player means that you're, income is based upon a certain amount of basketball related income. So when your top players are going to take a hit, they're going to be the leading voice to the younger players. In the last collective bargaining agreement, all of my insiders told me that the top players and top agents, you know basically they present to the to the players union and those players that don't know that much and aren't that well versed just want to get paid and, and play. Uh, so they don't look at the details. And then three years later, they're like, oh my goodness, why why is this my only option? Uh, so we were going into a market uh, where where players were going to probably be paid less than their statistical value anyways. Now we enter a market where tomorrow we could wake up and the NBA owners could cancel the collective bargaining agreement because of force majeure in the level of income that has been decreased. But when you factor that the social justice and you have players you know and and I'm using LeBron and Kyrie because this is how things always start there's obviously a a a divide there and Kyrie spoke up heavily and didn't participate LeBron kind of led the charge and and really put I don't want to say the whole league on his back but did a very good job of keeping things moving forward but there's a lot of money I believe it's over 3.5 billion of the the basketball related income in the 19-20 uh, season going to going to the NBA and 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 going to the owners and 3.5 billion going to the players. And just like any other business you now have a situation where the players may want a bigger chunk of that pie being in a large venue that holds 20,000 fans is probably not as important of a concept as getting the proper global streaming deal. Uh, I think that you have 27% of the NBA is now international players who don't bring that many fans to the arenas or to the games, uh, but obviously have a large following in the global market. And, you know, yet yet you have an opportunity for ownership that could exist um, if you can get you know, 100 to 120 players on the same page and be willing to backfill that with either less franchises, you know, let's say a, a 10 to 15 team league, or if you want to go to a 20 team experimental short season, you know, bubble league, you know, you could look at bringing in the, the D League players who are out of a job right now who are going to make nothing. You don't think that every team of G League players would be totally on board to join forces with let's say LeBron's league or Kyrie's league, if they each started their own league and these guys are going to get paid nothing this year. So if you, if you come up with something uh, where some type of streaming deal or some type of, you know, have the league in Disney or Las Vegas and do it for, you know, three months and just let people travel in to watch you play from all over the world. You know, there's some precedent set with the NBA summer league. There's some precedent set with the bubble uh, that the interest would still be there. Yeah, ratings are down, but there's still hundreds of millions of people that tuned into NBA games uh, that would follow what goes on. So that's wow. where I. That's today. You know, now I can tell you my thoughts on why I think this is the
0: time to make it happen. After yes. I see what you say. Oh well, I, yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, yeah, I'd love to hear your uh, yeah. Say more. Why do you think now is the time to make it happen? Do, do you think it will? Yeah. I
1: think that I think if you look at I'm going to use two examples here that are crazy, but I was very lucky. If you I was lucky to be in a big part of a documentary and kind of wrote the script for a documentary called One in a Billion, which was about Satnam Singh, the first Indian player that was ever drafted into the NBA by the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, he was at the academy for almost five, a little over five years, you know, and did really well. But that whole project started with a, a, a partnership with. Keshambani, probably the richest man or richest family in India where they wanted to grow sports globally. This gave me access uh, to go to India on two different occasions, uh, spend some time in New Delhi, spend some time in Nave, Mumbai, which is about two hours north of Mumbai. Uh, and IMG, the global company that I kind of worked for at the time that has stuff with the academy, was a big investor in the IPL. The IPL is the Indian Professional Cricket League, which was started by a guy named Lalit Modi. I believe I pronounced that right. Interesting to look him up. Interesting to follow all of it. He basically took all of the best cricket players in the world and started a two-month Super League in India and sold sponsorships to the franchises and got the TV deal done uh, with the assistance of IMG at the time, and so I got to be around India when all this was going on, and it was super controversial and it was a big deal because cricket is huge, obviously, in Europe and in England and New Zealand and Australia, and then India—it's it's gigantic. Pakistan, uh, and they were they pulled it off, and they not only pulled it off—is they made with this auction-based league, uh, where basically people bought franchises, and then they auctioned off the players to the franchises the richest people in India bought the franchises as basically a, a, a fun thing. You know, now 50 million is a lot of dollars, but for a lot of people in India who could do it, they did it. Then the auction league came and the auction league basically uh, was paid for by the sponsorships and the TV deal, which would now be a streaming deal. And they were able to pull this off and you know, you couldn't get a ticket and everybody who was everyone in Bollywood was sitting you know, court side for these quick matches. What was interesting was they did a shortened game to make it more exciting for the fans. And they did it right, you know, in, in on Fridays and Saturdays where the whole town and the whole city, much like we do with NFL and college football, this is what everybody did. Uh, and, and I think that example shows that somebody in this Modi, was leading the charge. This was his vision for 10 years to do this. And he finally, the stars aligned with the TV contract being up and him finding a sponsor to put some money behind it and somebody to fund it. And everything fell together. Uh, And other than the other national cricket leagues wanting to murder him uh, for stealing their players and disrupting their organizations, it was a huge success. And it still is a huge success today. And if you ever meet cricket People across the world—that's all they'll talk about—is—is uh, is that league because that's all of the best players competing in a very intense two-month segment. Uh, and more recently, which I love, and hopefully at least one other—I'm hoping that there's one other listener that might listen to this—is you know Cody Rhodes broke away from the WWE. Uh, and started his own wrestling organization called the AEW. He partnered with a guy named Tony Khan, who is the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars' son, and a big part of that. Uh, And they took the idea to Turner Broadcast and got a TV deal and then began recruiting some of the best wrestlers in the world uh, to to switch over uh, from the WWE and from New Japan Wrestling and some of the independent circuits, which I'm equating to the D-League, to join, uh, and and they're not obviously they just had their one year anniversary last night of being on television every Wednesday, uh, but they have you know just impeded the whole market and 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 people all over the world basically value them as the number two, which could easily easily with where the WWE is shaking and Vince McMahon getting older, they could easily be an equal competitor within four years. Uh, So by year five, they could actually be, you know, right there. But it was the alignment of Cody Rhodes wanting to do this and coming from a famous family of Dusty Rhodes and having tons of history and support on the wrestling side. And then Tony Khan wanting to do something completely crazy. Uh, And then again, Turner Broadcasting wanting to get back into the game because they had been such an influential part of WCW Uh, back in the 90s rating wars of, you know, raw versus nitro for your wrestling fans out there. So I'm using those two sports examples to kind of lead into the fact that it has more with the market being ripe and the equation being there and people in, in kind of the finance world needing things to do with their money. You know, I don't, I don't know that world as well as you do, uh, but it's, it wouldn't just be a toy there would be large returns just like AEW and just like the, um, the IPL, these people would see large returns on their investments.
0: Totally. No, I I have a bunch of reactions. I mean, one is, I feel like the NBA, if, if, if under a real threat of someone like LeBron, you know, going to start a new league, I I feel like they would cave, I, you know, maybe you disagree, but, if now the split is fifty fifty, I wonder if they would go as 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 low as like twenty eighty or something to to just keep the, the players involved. So I, I think players have a lot more leverage than perhaps they even think. If if they actually if if, if having a credible threat, and maybe it's not even Kyrie, maybe it has to be LeBron um, because the NBA could lose Kyrie. But I don't know, losing LeBron would be would be tough. Um, I, I think the way to get people involved. So one, you need a player like LeBron. There's only a few people like LeBron, right? Um, or maybe it's like Le'Angelo Ball. It's like the next generation or something. You you need a a guy like the the, the wrestling guy you mentioned, uh, an executive or, or, or the Jacksonville Sun person you, uh, you mentioned, a leader, a business leader. Um, but then I also think you need to sell the dream of hey, this is going to be the next NBA, and you you know dozens of you know players and influencers are going to have equity, or buying in on the ground floor, and uh, really incentivizing people on, on a level of this is a lo- you know this is how you get. Make the most money over a uh, over you know over the next thirty years, fifty years, way beyond your your playing career is really give them ownership in it. You know, Spencer Dinwiddie on the, on the Nets is, is doing some fascinating stuff on right? blockchain. He's really interested in in ownership. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's interesting. I, I have no idea if there's any evidence as to whether the drop in TV ratings is because of some of the sort of a- activism that's happening, or whether it's just because of how social media now works. People are tweeting but don't watch it on you know on television. But it is interesting, it's very common in, in media companies and in other, we're sort of seeing this great fragmentation where instead of serving everybody, you serve a smaller audience. Maybe it's it's a politically aligned audience or maybe it's it's something else, and you just serve them way better such that you um, get much more revenue per user. And so I could see, you know, a split in leagues where instead of appealing to everybody, they appeal to certain niches, but you just you take a lot more, you know, people pay as fans just more because there's they're more super fans. So those are my reactions.
1: Uh, the 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 thing i'm going to throw out there if there was a startup league is I, I think some of the agents have pools too like i think if lebron james decided he didn't want to do it uh but rich paul decided he did um or another agent that represents you know some of these guys represent 30 40 players like you could see a a, a pool of agents get together and say hey i think i can get 70% of my guys to yeah. do this or if you get two of the strongest european agents together with two American agents and one uh, Chinese agent, and you know that you're going to get three markets to kind of be able to sell to the streaming companies that you could get a pretty large deal uh, on the books uh, from, from a TV standpoint or from a sponsorship standpoint. So some of the other names that I wrote down, like obviously LeBron and Kyrie, you know, I wrote down Rich Paul just because he has influence. I wrote down William Wesley uh, who's the Knicks, obviously, you know, front office, uh, be, just because of his connections and innovation and, and just everything that he kind of has to put together. Uh, and then the last two here are kind of crazy, but you're not going to disagree with me. I mean, Mark Cuban, yeah, could, could, I don't think that he's anti-NBA, but he's definitely pro change. Like the guy has innovated everything and, and he's always, he's, I, I, I mean, he's seven steps ahead. Uh, and he also understands streaming and understands raise and understands how to do something. And then the last one here coming in crazy on top of LeBron is, Daniel you know, glo- globally, no, uh, globally is, is Yao Ming. Wow. You know, I mean, I mean, imagine if LeBron and Yao Ming partnered on this and wanted to get people behind it. Imagine how many people would be lined up. I mean, you said former athletes, like. Kevin Garnett would buy a franchise tomorrow. He can't necessarily get an NBA franchise, yep. you know, but he could. The, the last thing I'll kind of say here is I do think that the what is really unique right now, and I had this discussion with someone yesterday, is in America, we, we've seen the unfortunate incidences of, of some of these cities kind of getting torn apart. So you're also going to see the ability to build small arenas skyrocket in, in, in cities, whether it be you know, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, or Orlando, or so whether it's a smaller market, or whether it's a bigger market, you know, for someone to throw up a 10,000 seat arena, that's only specific to the, uh, the, the Manhattan mules, or whatever we want to call them, would not be as difficult as it was 10 months ago. Right? Yeah. And, and I think that when you look at multi use facilities, and then getting to the MLS stage, where you could actually have you know, standalone stadiums within the first five or six years of your league or in the first two years of your league, uh, then, then you're really looking at being a, a serious, serious competitor.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, I um, think about how you mentioned Garnett. I mean, there's so many people who want to be owners in, in certain capacities. Um, you know, my understanding is I think I heard from someone that it's $25 million minimum to buy a piece of a team or, or something crazy like that. In, in technology for startups you know much less than MBA teams but a lot of people want to be a part of uber or want to be part of whatever we're, we're trying to make it easier to have more people on the cap table such that you can give more people ownership and get people in for smaller checks and so instead of you know tens uh, or tens or hundred people on the cap table you can have thousands I think similarly for NBA teams or, or for this new league if you were able to allow people to buy in at a much smaller you know price level such that you, you could have you know a majority ownership but were, but then this long tail of influential people who then will promote it and stuff like it's it's players it's 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 former players it's celebrities etc i think it could be really powerful i mean one broader question like does nike have a role here are there other you mentioned agents are there other companies or or types of institutions that also could have some leverage here or could could make certain things happen
1: Not, I don't, nothing currently jumped out to me, um, but obviously I think we're going to see some merger and acquisition of some of these apparel companies. I think we're going to see some, you know, some, you could see some Chinese companies merge at at a bigger level. I mean, obviously Nike is not the example. I, but I do think that, that as things, as there's less available, um, that one of them would be very interesting in putting in a much bigger stake than they're currently putting in as a sponsor, yeah. uh, especially when we discussed earlier where, let's say, this league does get off the ground, and and then you have youth leagues within it, just like you know, see yeah. Barcelona does, or just like you know, Manchester United does, where you have all these youth teams all the way down to eight years old. Uh, then there's huge value to be involved from a apparel slash, you know, shoe slash, you know, a lot of these sports apparel companies have become technology companies as well. So, you know, when you're looking three, five years out, then they should invest. It's just,
0: will they? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the reason I mentioned, like, I'm not super familiar in AU, do, do they have a disp- disproportionate ownership or influence over AEU? or who, if a company does, who sort of o- o- owns that pipeline?
1: Uh, for, for years, they were just the innovator. They had the most money invested. Uh, they have, they're always ahead of – they just seem to be ahead of the game. They've had the same leadership uh, up until the scandal. So they had a lot of stability. They had a lot of innovation, uh, and, they, and they had a lot of loyalty. Uh, so a lot of the best players just stayed there. You know, they, A lot of the best players wanted to be there. Adidas and Under Armour did a great job of of, of really penetrating the market and, and doing it. And they got some of the best players in their leagues, but they never were able to kind of overcome the, the, the median talent uh that Nike had in their youth leagues uh overall.
0: Yeah. It's, it's it's interesting. I, I think in order to start this league, you, if obviously if, if someone like LeBron, you know anything's possible. If you don't, I feel like you need someone, you need to convince someone like Alonzo Ball or D'Angelo Ball of like, hey, you're an innovator. You want to you know leave a legacy. You're willing to take a risk, um, and, and really go after these. You know the, you need a pipeline of talent, and then you need a tremendous storytelling organization. Um, and marketing organization and it's like it's a documentary if you're tracing this new league. This is year one of what's going to be a you know multi hundred year organization and maybe a league starts out pretty young or or you get some people from the D league but it's um everyone I think invested. The, play,
1: the play also right now is let's say the salary cap goes down by projected thirty million. The mid level players are gonna make less money than ever before and the young players are going to have a much higher Chance of ever. I mean, the the amount of players that make more than ten million a year is going to be the lowest that it ever was. So, if you could create a proposition where the median player is going to get an get a contract and an equity share or a guaranteed, you know, basketball related income from their franchise to pay them more than or pay them the same for less work, then you then you could have something to propose to the median player. Or the older player, because we've seen some success with the big three, uh, not only from a television contract, but a super high competitive people going to the games, I think that you could definitely create, hey, I'd rather play 45 games and and make 4 million than play 82 games and make uh, 5.5, plus I'm going to get some shares if we do well, so I'm going to be better vested as opposed to getting traded halfway through the year because my contract is tradable. (laughs)
0: <laughs> totally and also like you know I don't, I don't i don't know if stefan marbury wanted to go to china and play there when he, when he was done with his you know with when no nba team would, would take him in the way that he wanted or there's a bunch of players who have to end up going overseas and it disrupts their whole lives maybe some want to but for others who want to keep playing but you know still full court basketball you know still at a very high level you know marbury was still fun to watch it's still you know it still could still still could play he had a great career in china right Um, And, and,
1: And I think, I mean, look, the China league pays the second most, uh, the Euro league up until COVID was booming. Uh, the Australian league and, uh, Korean and Japanese leagues are becoming very, very appealing for the later stage players that, that, that are, that are over 30 years old to go and finish out their career. But I think it also plays into what we're talking about. Like, I don't know how welcomed Americans will be three years from now in some of these countries. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how much Americans are going to want to leave their families behind and go to Europe or China three years from now. Hopefully, it's all the same and everybody's making the money that they were making. But if it goes the opposite direction, then the need for a, a, a second league becomes even higher, or even bigger. Because now you're talking about another, you know, you're talking about another three to. 500 players who are very good, not wanting to leave the United States, um, but still being able to put a really good product on the floor.
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, this is a perfect place to to, to wrap. It's going to happen. We're going to make it happen. <laughs> if, uh, if, if you're listening and you um, want to be a part of it in some way, want to see it happen, reach out to to Dan and myself. Uh, Dan, any other plugs uh, that you want to leave us with or, or, or last notes for people who want to learn more about you or or, or, or find you online?
1: I mean, first and foremost, I mean, if people aren't familiar with IMG Academy uh, and what we offer for camps and our our boarding school product, uh, if you're looking for for youth athletes to be pushed to the next level, uh, there's nothing like it in the world. It will will change their lives, whether it's for one week, uh, one year or six years. Uh, I can't I can't recommend it enough to all the parents out there. Uh, We do not have a jumping program developed for you yet, Eric. Uh, but I, still, I will continue to look into that with our strength Thanks. staff, uh, you know, and then uh, I, again, I think that uh, for, you know, for all the people that are looking to, you know, that are looking for technologies to, to push on youth athletes, especially in the basketball segment, like uh, that's, you know, that's my passion. That's what I spend every day besides this business stuff toying around with is uh, sports technology and how we can help this next generation of basketball players, you know, outperform the one we currently have because we've been damn lucky right now.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to do another episode to to go even deeper. Dan, this was a ton of fun. Uh, Thank you so much for for calling the podcast. It was an honor. Awesome. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.